Hi, this is Courtney Hammond-Wagner with the Finding Sustainability podcast. Today, Michael and I are joined by Dr. Joseph Amond, an ecological economist at the University of Vermont who studies the monetary system. In this conversation with Joe, we go deep into the concept of money to think about common money misconceptions, the role of money right now during the COVID-19 pandemic and the current economic crisis, and finally, why it's so critical to think about the monetary system to design a just and sustainable future. Enjoy. During the pandemic, um, feels like we're getting these daily or even like hourly reports on the state of the economy. And we're getting uh, stimulus checks that have been sent out. We're like hearing all about these relief for businesses. And the first thing that came to me when I was thinking about this is your work um, and, mo- and money. And like, what's the role of money of this? Um, we have all this money being created by the government, sent into the economy. And I really want you to help us figure out what that means. <laughs> help me figure out what that means. Um, and then there's all this talk about what comes next. Like, how are we going to use this time to um, create a new institutions that work for us, that work for people and the planet? Um, so that's your short, um, small, confined task for this conversation. So I know you spend a lot of time thinking about what most of us take to be a pretty simple question, which is what is money? And I wonder if that's a good place for us to start. Um, so what what is money and why do you think so much about it? Yeah, I mean, that is a really good question. I mean, and your your framing of the question is, is perfect. Um, it's something that I think we take for granted a lot. And the way we all think about money is the, the bills that are, and coins that are in our pockets. Uh, and it just sort of influences how we think about uh, spending at the federal and national level. So, and I'll touch on that later. Um, but just to step back a bit into my research, um, when I started my PhD, I was really interested in a lot of questions around like asset price inflation, like why are houses getting more expensive? Um, looking at income inequality, environmental degradation, and the role of the monetary system in those, in driving those sort of problems. Um, but every time I would look at a question, um, a research question, I would, get, w- w- my colleague and I, uh, Roman Smortsman, you, you know him, he, um, he and I would always just get to the bottom of some of these research questions and we would end up asking ourselves, what is money? Uh, so we can't really, so one question would be like, what is the role of central bank lending in creating asset price bubbles in like the housing market? And at the end of the day, we would get to this question of what is money. So both of us sort of decided we can't really ask some of these empirical research questions questions until we sort of ask ourselves what is money and answer that uh, appropriately. Now that it seems like a pretty simple question, what is money? Uh, and it ends up being sort of the second, the title of the second chapter of my dissertation. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to answer the question of what is money and sort of to, to play out in this I mean, Courtney, you, you framed this question so well because it ends up <laughs> this whole like what's going on now and what comes next all kind of come from this question, what is money? Um, so that question that you framed is so critical to all of this. Um, so just a quick, quick little, I don't want to say history lesson, but uh, theoretical economics lesson. Uh, <laughs> the mainstream sort of neoclassical school of economics 
um, the Adam Smith, the, the uh, Milton Friedman, sort of the big name economists that you tend to hear about, um, view money as sort of a, um, a medium of exchange, right? It's, it's considered to be a neutral thing um, that really importantly has historically come to replace barter, right? So the story is thousands of years ago, we had these really simple economies where individuals would exchange goats for fish. Um, that created a lot of problems uh, that the neoclassical and mainstream school like to discuss, and it's called the double coincidence of wants problem, where if I'm a fisherman and I want a goat, the goat farmer needs to want fish in order for that trade to work. Money steps in as sort of this spontaneous solution to that problem, and it usually embodies a gold coin, right? So we start seeing this, this idea of this money as this material thing that lubricates exchange between individuals. And that idea of barter really lays the foundation for supply and demand economics that, that I won't get into now, but it really lays the, 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 the foundation for thinking of efficient markets and um, economic models efficiently allocating value amongst economic actors. Um, and that's really what, what ends up being important in this mainstream idea is efficiency. Uh, and efficiency, importantly, of value exchange. Um, and then importantly, sort of implicit in all of that discussion is this idea that value is the foundation of money. So the underlying sort of natural value in goods and services lays the foundation for our money system that is really neutral, right? It doesn't matter who creates money, how it's distributed. What's important is that it allows this efficient lubrication of the means of exchange. Okay, so that's sort of how the neoclassical school looks at it. And be because of that, like a lot of, I think what I, what I just said, you might hear in the news, right? So we're approaching this, uh, this sort of pandemic and the, the economic crisis through how do we most efficiently get money into the hands of economic actors? Um, and you'll, you, we'll hear uh, the chairman of the Fed talking about the, um, efficient markets. We'll, we'll, we've heard um, ex-chairman of the Fed talking about barter and money is neutral. And we, we hear of this a lot. So a lot of the systems that we have are still rooted in sort of that view of money. Um, the question then is, what if that's wrong, right? What if, <laughs> What if money is not uh, a neutral medium of exchange? What if the story of barter is historically inaccurate? What if money is more or deeper or broader than that understanding? Uh, then we've got quite a problem on our hands. And, and that, so that was sort of what, what my research delved into was asking, okay, this, this is what the neoclassical sort of mainstream understanding of money is. Let me look and see if that's correct. And my research essentially said that it was, it was quite incorrect. Um, and I won't go into the, the full thing because, uh, you know, I want to kind of get going on that conversation. But essentially, my work said that the story of barter is, is not correct for a lot of reasons, both logically and, and historically. But we don't really see any 
evidence that barter existed um, historically as an economic system. And it kind of makes sense once you kind of, and I, I teach my students in macroeconomics this, this idea, it, it, it makes a lot of sense once you kind of get, think about it. Um, Adam Smith talked about specialization in labor leading to this, you know, double coincidence of wants problems. So Adam Smith would say a, a fisherman would specialize and then get too many fish that he or she needed to trade in order to get the other things that other specialists in the economy wanted. But then the question is, if we use barter for those systems, how did anyone become a specialist, right? How do I become a carpenter if I barter the final goods to get the inputs to my, to become a carpenter, right? When we use barter, we can't ever really become a specialist uh, because you, you don't have the final goods to become the specialist in the first place. But more importantly, production happens in stages, right? So if I am a baker, I don't have the bread with which to barter to get the flour to make the bread. Uh, and production also happens in seasonal stages, right? I don't have the fish that I will get in the fall in the spring. Uh, and in the spring, I need to buy a ship, outfit the ship with hooks and you know workers and things like that. So what we see in the historical record is actually that instead of barter, old economic systems were based on credit. And we see credit, like all of a sudden, like this light bulb goes off in the historical, uh, in the historian's work that says, oh my gosh, credit solves all of the problems that these neoclassical people said a gold coin was solving. It wasn't about barter, it was about credit. So the fisherman would say, hey, I'm gonna go out to sea for a few months. Can I get a loan to purchase a ship, outfit the ship to get some workers? And then when they come back with their wares, you know, all the fish in the fall, they pay back their creditors. So what we see is historically money is, um, is a system of credits and debts between economic actors. But then what becomes really important is who, what is denominated in these debt credit relationships? And the answer ends up being this, this abstract unit of account, which is a dollar or a euro or a yen. Um, and this all kind of coming together answers the question of what is money. And I, I make the argument that, that money is, is an abstract unit of account that is used to denominate credit and debt relationships amongst actors. And the really important thing there then becomes this idea of power, right? Who gets to set the unit of account? Who issues credit into the economy? Who takes on debts within an economy? So instead of money being this neutral facilitator of exchange, we see money as this inherently um, power-ridden system of exchange. Now, that can be nefarious and it can be social, uh, you know, just. The piece that I find so interesting about everything you just said and how you lay it out in your work is you make this connection between the power in money being this social relation and what that means for issues of social and gender um, inequity and the sort of environmental degradation that we see going on. And this is what, this is a, something that I've like sort of intuitively sensed, but the way that you make this case of this relationship, I think is really powerful and, and has a lot to say about where we should go. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, the, the sort of, embeddedness of money. 
Yeah, so, so I know that there's a lot of lead up, but we're pretty much there where we can get that nice conversation going. So if you recall from earlier, I said that in the, in the sort of mainstream school, value is the foundation of money. When we think of systems of credit and debt and units of account and power, we can start thinking instead that money is the foundation of value. And that sort of flips this entire value ontology on its head. Again, money is the foundation of value. And by that, I mean the system of money, the system of credits and debts leads and drives what has value in an economy. So that sort of gets at, at your question. Right now, we value fossil fuels. So there's a lot of credit that goes into the fossil fuel industry, right? We value um, metals uh, for their use in our phones and things like this. So there's a lot of credit being pumped into those industries. So the, the money system, the manner in which credits are pumped into our economy drives what has value in our economy. So if we wanted to shift that a little bit, we could shift our money system to flow, to, to pump credit into renewable energy, for example. And all of a sudden we'd see a value shift in our economy away from extractive industry and towards sort of maybe non-extractive or at least renewable forms of energy in non-extractive industries and things like that. And then similarly, if we had, you know, and I don't want to just toot the universal basic income horn, but this is getting a lot of discussion right now. And, and it sort of feeds into that. You know, if we're, if we were able to put money into the economy for the work that is done in the home, that I think we're all realizing now in this time of being stuck in COVID, that this home labor is absolutely critical and it happens and needs to happen whether or not we're at the office or not. And we're realizing now that when we're not at the office that it happens, right? So if we could have a system that put money into home labor, then maybe we would value the, the, the community impact of that home labor because right now it's not really valued. If you stay at home, there's no way for you to get money to pay your rent, right? You have to get that outside of the home. Um, so there's this idea of, of getting money into the hands of places that, would, uh, that underlies so much of our economy. So universal basic income and clean energy is just sort of two quick examples of how looking at the fact that money lays the foundation of value by pumping money into those places where we could use them more justly and more sustainably would see a value shift in how our economies operate. Yeah. So... Um... My brain's trying to make sense of this critique of the traditional kind of efficient market story. And one way in which it's, I've, I've dealt with this is it's, yeah, I mean, the, the original story is, is, you know, stories are so powerful, right? And so books are based on stories. And then, for, you know, suddenly 50 years later, we've got this, this whole like intellectual edifice based on like a very simple little story of like two folks trading some stuff and it's a win-win situation and everyone kind of walks away a winner. And so <clears throat> the conclusion is, well, let's just get as many of those situations going as possible. Let's like maximize trade. And, you know, you read a, a kind of regular econ textbook and it says, well, efficient markets are efficient so long as all of these exceptions don't apply, right? So there's no externalities. Uh, it's completely voluntary. There aren't power asymmetries. And, you, I, I remember having this moment in like environmental economics thinking, well, 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 wait a minute. Like those exceptions are there all the time. Right. Right. So ex externalities are there all the time. And that's the dominating um, dynamic 
in like environmental governance is just like there's externalities everywhere. And so it's less like whether or not they're externalities, it's more like, do we care enough about the externalities to try to take care of them? Is, is, is that uh, a helpful way to try to make sense of your argument, or at least part of it? Is that it's problematizing this initial story of this being like a win-win and really like these what are considered to be market failures as exceptions are really ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up such an, a great point because when, um, when uh, Walra, who is sort of the, 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 the person who mathematically created these supply and demand curves, when he was developing those curves, what he was doing was essentially trying to mimic a barter economy. Um, and it, it's really interesting when, when you look at what Wal Ra was doing, he was looking at the, the stock exchange and he was looking at how traders were making stock decisions. Well, clearly a stock with several privileged people making supply and demand choices about that is, is about as close to barter as you can get. Right. So so he was sort of creating a theory on a very small subsect subsection of the planet in an, in backing out uh, a, a theory of the economy that didn't apply. So I think you're getting at something. But then so when I started looking into this work, I was starting to realize that changing our story around money has this side effect of changing our story around basic microeconomics which maybe gets a little bigger than I was expecting. Um, but you bring up such an interesting point about like externalities and the question then becomes, are externalities external or are they, are they actually intrinsic to all trade, right? It, can you not? Mm, exactly. It, I mean, we think about them as externalities because economists like to say, oh, that's outside of this trade mechanism. Well, rather than looking at it then like that and, and not even saying let's internalize externalities. Let's just realize that these problems are inherent to trade itself. Um, and so the, one of the assumptions in barter is that new, that these relationships are neutral and powerless. And that's just not true there. I mean, and I've had arguments with people before about whether or not barter ever exists. Um, not necessarily just as an economic institution, but I sort of make the argument that uh, barter doesn't exist. There's always a social dynamic inherent in trade. Trade is, is inherently social, right? If I make a trade with you, even if I see you on the street in passing, if I'm scared of you or you're scared of me, there's a power dynamic inherent in that. And there's also a time lag, right? So there's all these things that there's no such thing as a neutral trade. Um, and so then going to what you mentioned about efficiency, this is why I think we should focus less on efficiency because the outcome of a supply curve intersecting a demand curve is a place of social optimality and social market efficiency. And that's great. But when we realize that probably isn't the case, I think it makes more sense to focus on things like resiliency. And when I say resiliency, what I mean is let's, let's, let's be as efficient as maybe we can or we want to. So let's, let's not be profligate with printing money for clean energy, but let's, uh, let's allow systems that if one you know, system fails, there's a backup that's readily available. So sort of this, when I, when I say let's move away from efficiency to resiliency, I don't mean scrap efficiency altogether, but I mean scrap efficiency as the end all be all. 
because it allows a, a, a resiliency allows us to have backup systems and not to go too far into what's going on right now, but I think what we're seeing is we, we are holding up the banks and we are holding up big corporations as these efficient allocators of wealth and creators of wealth in our economy. And we're holding them all, we're holding them up against all odds. We cannot let them fail. And I think it would make a lot more sense to be resilient in a moment like this, to step back, let everyone, um, we, we could pause the economy, something like other countries have, have done like Denmark and just sort of slow down the whole economy, pump money into the healthcare system uh, in order for, for that system for efficient, uh, for example, to be more resilient right now uh, and be able to respond to this. And then when we get through this, maybe pull that money back out of the healthcare system, right? But when we have this efficiency system, it's, it's always based on allocating value in the best, most, my, I mean, the ways that decisions are made are at the minuscule second and penny level and tiny interest rate changes. And like, that just doesn't allow for us to, to respond well to catastrophe. Now that's, that's in the context of catastrophe. I mean, that we should be resilient all the time, but. So I've, I like where you're going with that. And I want to come back to that on the, of this sort of, it seems like where you're getting at is this like incremental versus sort of transformational change that we need to do in terms of where we're pumping money in and how. Um, so thinking pandemic future, but I first wanted to ask about something you said, this is going to Michael's question too, of like what's sort of external to that supply demand curve. And, you know, when we say something social optimal, what's being left out. And I know that you've been really influenced by ecofeminism. And I want to ask how, cause I think, uh, maybe, maybe this is naive on my part, but initially I didn't quite see the clear intersection there of why ecofeminism would bring in this lens to monetary theory that sort of allowed you to make this, these connections. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how it influenced your work. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, to do that quickly. Um, I think part of it is the, the part of that answer is, is also an answer to the question about, um, uh, what, what Michael posed a moment ago about externalities. And it's sort of this idea that nothing is done in a vacuum, I guess. I think ecofeminism sort of, the reason I was drawn to the school of thought is that it's sort of, it blends a lot of justice movements, uh, feminist, racial, um, environmental, a lot of different justice movements. And it sort of says that the underlying relationship between all these movements of justice is the fact that our, our Western philosophical thought structure divides reality into opposite and opposing realms of otherness. So you've got the superior and the inferior. So you might have the masculine as superior to the feminine. Um, and those superiors tend to uh, not really look at the importance of the inferior, right? So masculine labor productive labor, our creation of commodities in the market, tends to under uh, give less importance to the role of, of, of the home labor, not just feminine, but all the work that we all do at home, our, our digestive work, our sleeping, our rest, our emotional labor at home, cooking for ourselves, enjoying one another in love and these types of things. The factory work doesn't really put much of an importance on how much it relies on that sphere. So that's sort of this idea of the, the dualistic Western philosophy. So when I started looking into these ideas of barter, uh, 
I started to see this relationship and I can't claim that I did this on my own. I've been heavily influenced by a woman named Mary Miller in, in the UK and many other people. But we, I started seeing this idea that when we think of barter, we think of it as just a, an economic actor creating a commodity and exchanging it neutrally. But there's not really that um, acceptance of the fact that in order to create the con that commodity, that economic actor relied on reproductive labor in the home, his or her own reproductive labor, the reproductive labor of his or her family, and the reproductive nature of the ecosystem within which it was operating. Um, so that dualistic philosophy is embedded in this barter and commodity system of economic thought. But it also sort of gives rise to this, um, this efficiency model where, so out of dual, if you think of dualism as not really paying attention to the inputs that go into commodity creation, you can also think of uh, atomism as sort of coming out of that in reductionist theory that systems are not as complicated as they appear, right? So we can see a supply and a demand curve just intersecting and denying any socio relationships between the suppliers and the demanders, right? So we see this reductionist mechanical uh, supply equals demand curve that sort of atomizes any of the complexity within which those markets operate. So, so dualism and atomism are sort of these, what I sort of went on heavily with uh, to critique that neoclassical model. So then if we think of money as, 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 as I've explained it, sort of this credit debt relationship embodied in a unit of account, we see that this power is there and we start seeing money as a social relationship. And that sort of, when we think of money as a social relationship, we can start to see that we are all dependent on one another. We are all dependent upon the ecosystem. The ecosystem is depe dependent upon us and influenced by us. And we're like co and inter evolutionary. Um, and that gives a lot of a different framing for how we think about money, how we think about economics, how we think about um, sustainability. So, I mean, that's sort of the eco-feminist piece of my work in, in a very small nutshell. Um, but Michael, you look like you may have a question. I have five or six, <laughs> but I'm aware that we only have like half an hour. So um, you mentioned earlier, Joe, that you, you teach a course in macroeconomics. Yes. Um, and, I, you know, it's not lost on a lot of people who might be listening to this, that economics among all the social sciences, right, has the kind of dominant position in policy analysis as a practice and pedagogically. Yes. So I'm interested in uh, two-parter. What is your favorite part of how you teach that course? And how might that relate to your opinion on how we might change economics education based on these ideas? Wow. Uh, that's 50 that's words huge. or less, please. In how many words? <laughs> Three words. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I mean, so you're getting at something that I think is kind of central to, to why I do this work. I, to a couple lives ago, I, I wanted to do maybe like economic sociology or, or something along those lines, or even sociology. And I still draw from those schools very heavily, but you, you do bring up this, the central 
point, uh, place that economics has in our discourse. So I, I decided to sort of become an economist because um, for better or worse, those are the voices that are, I think are listened to at the national stage. So I, I, I wanted to sort of um, get, get some of these. And, and I mean, to be honest, our field, ecological economics, um, draws on a lot of schools. Um, but I think becoming an economist was, was sort of to address a lot of those things and because the, 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 the how loud that voice can be. Um, mm -hmm. So, and, and then getting to, to your questions is you get to influence students, right? So my teaching philosophy is, um, is to give students the best information and allow them to make the the decision you know that that they want to leave the university with right so i do my absolute best to not um say this is the right way of thinking so i teach the the neoclassical and i say these are the problems with it this is why mm -hmm. i teach it because it is everywhere in policy um i teach the way uh that that, that the neoclassical school talks about money creation and then i say this is how I talk about money creation. So I give both sides. Um, I think the favorite part about my teaching those courses is actually doing that because when you provide an alternative, you see students' faces kind of light up. Um, and when I talk about, um, and we didn't get into this in this conversation, but uh, money is created in the economy when, when commercial banks create loans for corporations and individuals. That's the vast majority of our money is created by, by the commercial banking industry. When I sort of talk about that, you see students' faces light up. Um, and then I, when I juxtapose it against how the neoclassical and you know, normal macro would, would talk about how money is created, they then get to leave the class and say, okay, is Joe a crackpot or are the economics te textbooks crackpots? And they get to make that decision, but you also see them engaging with the material and then going out on their own. And I've had some, I mean, I was just grading finals this morning, final papers, and, and some of the work I get from these students is fabulous, right? So that's, that's really what I like is seeing the future of scholars like sort of grappling with some of these big questions. Um, but then how do we do economics differently? I mean, I, so while I just mentioned my theory, my philosophy of teaching is to give the truth and allow students to make their own decisions. I, I do wonder what my role is in, um, in pushing um, a different message. Right. And I do struggle with that because if, if we want to do economics differently, we really have to be strong and critical of the current paradigm. But I also am really resistant to, to this idea of brainwashing, right? I don't want brainwashing because I think there's already this idea that professors are brainwashing students to become leftist um, people who can't think. Like I hear that all the time in the media. Um, so I really don't want that to be, to be something that I um, am accused of. But on the flip side, I think that the, th the economic theories that we're teaching these students are completely flawed from the get-go. Um, so, so that's a fine balance. I mean, it's a really fine balance. And I think ecological economics does a really good job of walking that balance because they address the neoclassical and say, this is how policy, this is what informs policy. And then kind of hits it 
from the perspective that you asked earlier and says, well, what if those things are wrong? Then what does policy need to look like? So I think it, that's a good framework. Um, I mean, that approach makes a lot of sense to me. The, the main concern I have, whether it's left or right or whatever labeling it, right, is education as content dissemination, where it's like, look yeah. at this formula, memorize it, pump it back to me in some version or other. Like you don't get internalization, you don't get buy-in. Yeah. Right. So I really like the approach you're talking about where they have to kind of make up their own minds and do that work themselves. And it's a more active approach to learning. I think that's regardless of whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, perspective ideology we're teaching from. I mean, I think if we can teach it that way, the students will be better off. Yeah. I mean, I, can I ask a follow up please, on that? Please. How are you talking to your students about the pandemic? Are you talking to them about money and the macroeconomic system in the pandemic? I mean, it's been really interesting. Uh, when we came back from spring break, classes were canceled. Um, so I initially took the opportunity, I, I changed the final assignment and said, let's talk about macro and Corona. I got some pushback though, because several students, and, and I completely understand this, didn't want to talk about Corona anymore. Like they've been just inundated with it all day, every day. People are losing jobs and families being put out of homes and, and they just didn't want to write a final paper on it. So I said, okay, those of you who want to do that, because some were really interested, those who want to do it, do it. Those who don't, here's four other questions you can answer in a final paper. Um, but that being said, I did change the syllabus in the latter half of the semester to put it in the context of what's going on because my initial syllabus for macro that I've taught before doesn't really get into quantitative easing in a lot of like it's it's more it's their first macro course um so I didn't want to really get into all of that stuff but I changed it and we talked about quantitative easing we talked about what the fed is doing uh right now we talked about what the how the treasury spends and we got into some of that I will be changing my future course to teach um to, 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 to teach basically, I get, yeah, all of the stuff that I guess we would talk about in this conversation for an entire course. Um, so I'll scrap some of the other stuff and I want to redesign it basically um, macro finance in the context of post pandemic life or something like that. Like, um, so yeah, I guess the answer to your question is I, I sprinkled this new stuff in there because every day, and the funny thing is I did a lecture on May, March 19th when we came back from spring break and it was outdated by like two weeks later, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's been, I mean, I, I still jump on the news every single morning and say, oh my gosh, what is happening? And maybe that's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's, I wanna make sure we have enough time to dive into that, but um, as sort of a, a lead up to that, I feel like you and I have chatted before about how you feel like your work is really theoretical and it's like for the future. Yeah. And I feel like maybe the future is now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious about, um, you know, that switch for you of going from like, I'm thinking about what this future transition can be, this transformation in our monetary system to now, this might be the opportunity. And so is it the opportunity? What would that look like? you know, what's being done now and is that helping us get there? Yeah. Or yeah. So just diving into one that. thing is I, I'm hesitant to, I mean, Naomi Klein wrote this brilliant book 10 years ago or so called The Shock Doctrine. And I'm very hesitant of using this crisis as an opportunity. 
Um, so I, I just want to throw that out there. Um, that being said, looking around at what's happening around the world um, is providing a little bit of insight into what could, what the future could look like. Uh, and it's also sort of giving some credence to some of what economists like myself and others have been saying for quite some time. So I just want to give two very quick examples and I'll say what, what my fears are around those examples, but then where the opportunity lies as well. Uh, we're seeing quantitative easing, basically unlimited amounts of quantitative easing in the United States. And essentially what quantitative easing does is the central bank of the United States buys uh, the debt that the treasury has in the markets and holds that it on its balance sheets. So when the treasury, uh, when the US government borrows, it issues bonds and institutional investors like pension funds hold those bonds. During quantitative easing, the Fed goes out and purchases those bonds. And the goal is to get money out there uh, into the market so that there's more liquidity in those markets and they can function like they're supposed to. But quantitative easing has this weird way of funding the government, um, what we've seen is we've seen some pretty fast uh, bond purchases by the, tr by the Fed in response to increased treasury spending. So we're seeing that quantitative easing normally purchases bonds that have been sitting out on the market for quite some time. Now they're happening within milliseconds, right? So we're seeing that maybe there's this tighter coordination between the treasury and the Fed, which are supposed to be distinct for political reasons. Um, but we're starting to see that uh, quantitative easing has the, the ability to indirectly finance government spending. So that's sort of one, and the, the, that's probably, uh, I mean, that, that's, there's a lot more complexity that goes into it. That's sort of the, an easy way to sort of explain it. Um, but then the other thing is, in Britain, they just, uh, they just had this really interesting um, system open up that Basically, the Bank of England, which is the central bank in the United Kingdom, has given an overdraft facility to the government. So that works just like if you or I overdraft on our checking account, the bank will lend us a little bit of money for a few days until we pay that back and there's a slight interest on that. So that always exists in normal times to sort of smooth spending of the government so that you don't you know, miss anything, just like it does with you and I. But the Bank of England has basically said, we can open up this what's called ways and means facility. So they've essentially said that they will directly finance the treasury's spending there. So these two sort of systems operating uh, show us that there is the opportunity for the, the, the central bank to have some direct financing of the government or indirect or direct financing of the government in a way that it hasn't really before. Um, so what does that mean for the future? It means that people, when they say the government doesn't have unlimited amounts of money, aren't correct, right? So when we start talking about healthcare for all, when we start talking about transitions in our energy system, we can now point to well, 2008, but importantly, we can say, well, what happened in 2020? They seem to have unlimited amounts of money then, right? So that, that, that question about how we pay for it is sort of starting to go our way. On the flip side, though, I do want to be hesitant before we say, hey, we've won this ideological battle because 
let's not forget that the people who are pulling those strings at, and making these things work still have this growth imperative at the center of their um, economic out, outlook, this efficient markets and like, let's get money to efficiently to the places they need to in our economy so we can grow and get back to this place that produces and grows and grows and grows. So we have won, I think, the battle in the sense that we've said the, um, and they talk about it in the UK, they call it the magic money tree. We've seen that the magic money tree has been opened up now. The question then becomes, do we use it for social and ecological justice or do we continue to use that magic money tree for growth-based economic systems and channeling money um, to the wealthy? Uh, which unfortunately is some of what we've seen in the bailout from the treasury and they're concerned about that in the UK and in Europe as well, that are these bailouts and are these stimulus packages getting to people who need it or is it continuing to exacerbate some income inequality? So the answer to your question is we've seen that it's possible. Now it just depends on what we do with that possibility. Um, and I could, I guess I could just, I would love to see a universal basic income for home labor just be, you know, Andrew Yang talked about it on the, on the presidential trail, but um, that would that would really, really give credence to this, like put, put money into the pockets of people who do home labor. And that money would then be channeled directly into the economy. You know, because you know who doesn't stuff money into a stock market is someone who makes $1,000 a month. You know, that money goes directly to the economy. Um, but then th th those are kind of small potatoes in the context of Medicare for all or universal healthcare, universal uh, higher education, um, you know, renewable energy infrastructure and things like that. Do you think that the, the stimulus checks might move the dial that direction? Uh, you mean the $1,200 checks that, that were issued? Well, I mean, I don't necessarily think so. I think, um, I think, so the answer is no. I think, um, I think those stimulus checks were great and um, they, did, they did some good work and it was sort of like to plug up a dam, you know, that it's about to burst. Somebody stuck a, you know, some bubble gum in that, in that hole. I think what needs to happen is something along the lines of, you know, a thousand dollar check per month for the duration of the crisis. Um, and then there's sort of the idea of, well, what about people who don't deserve it? Well, okay, fine. Like, but there are a lot of people who deserve it. I think it makes more sense to get that money out there quickly um, and continually. And we've seen other countries who have done, like the UK has done like an 80% income guarantee. Uh, Denmark froze their economy with like a 75% income guarantee. And a lot of other countries have done what's called freezing the economy, where essentially all payments are stopped um, for things like mortgages and rent and banks. And that way, because what, what happens is if we just say you don't have to pay your rent or you don't have to pay your mortgage, well, the landlord then still has to pay his or her mortgage. And then the, the mortgage has to be paid to the bank. And then the bank has to, you know, if, if, that, if you cut out payments at every different level, it ends up getting to the banking system which then has a huge liquidity crisis on our hands, on its hands. So essentially you can't do piecemeal regulation and, and stopping of payments. And this is why putting the economy in the freezer 
in other countries has has worked pretty well and i think i think it's a better approach because you just pause everything and that way when this crisis is over you s simply turn the lights back on everyone goes back to their same jobs nobody missed mortgage payments nobody racked up debt like big companies didn't get bigger small companies didn't go out of business um that was sort of a long answer to that one thousand dollar stimulus payment I think we have time for maybe one or two questions more. Michael, do you want to sure. hop in? Yeah, I'd love to ask one more question. So um, I'm sh I imagine you all have heard about the, the negative oil uh, phenomenon. Yeah. There's been lots of, I listen to lots of podcasts and so Planet Money and everyone's kind of had their own negative oil podcast episode, it seems like. Yeah. And it relates to a, a question that I had more generally about the role of, of markets and economic transactions in the governance of natural resources, right? So we've got markets are a really big deal in cap and trade. They're a part of it. They're a really big deal in fisheries policy. You know, ITQs are essentially cap and trade for fisheries. And there's been this big concern in that context about the difference between the actual resource and this more conceptual resource that's kind of getting batted around in these markets. And in fisheries, the fact that the rights are tradable, right, has, has led to the alienation of those rights from local folks, from local fisheries. And um, when I was hearing about the story of, of oil, it sounded, I mean, it's obviously very different, but also sounded similar in that they have this distinction. I mean, the Planet Money episode made pointed this out, that there's real oil, there's the oil in the ground, and then there's this oil that can be kind of traded in these markets that is basically you know it's i'm trading a promise to you to deliver oil to a certain place in oklahoma but the amount of oil that is promised in those markets vastly exceeds the amount of oil that can actually get taken out of the ground so there's actual oil and then there's this kind of fantasy oil and i'm wondering what is based on the perspective that you've been developing does that affect how you interpret that case specifically that's happening because of Every, you know, all the disruptions we just talked about, um, or more generally, the perspective of the role of markets in natural resource governance? Oh, that's a big one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I worked on a study a few years ago that I'm sort of trying to rehash right now. Um, so the data that I'm about to use will be a little bit old, but just a few years. Um, part of what you're, you're getting at is this idea of, of stranded assets. So fossil fuel companies have on their balance sheets uh, hydrocarbons. They own reserves of hydrocarbons, and that's part of what you're talking about, these fictitious trading um, uh, energy. Um, but if we want to stay under two degrees Celsius, uh, certain amounts of hydrocarbons need to stay in the ground, the vast majority of them. So there's this idea that there are, they call this the stranded assets. Um, if we basically, if we decide to stay within two degrees Fahrenheit of, of warming, um, something like $17 trillion need to be written off of the fossil fuel industry um, as a loss, because those what, what, what are assets on their balance sheet can't be realized as actual fossil fuels or will burn the planet. So then looking at it from a monetary perspective or like a macro perspective, I would make the argument that it would make more sense 
to because we've got this huge carbon bubble that is is about to burst the stock exchange and it's getting even worse now with the, the prices like we're starting to see and this is what planet money kind of covered um some of these fossil fuel in, companies are about to go under and so we've got this sort of multi faceted issue but the manner in which the fossil fuel industry is is tied up in our economy makes it sort of too big to fail, if you will. I mean, uh, too maybe integral to fail. So I make the argument that in a, in a, a paper that I wrote that we could just buy the fossil fuel industries and close them down. And so that's kind of the, the big kind of coming back to what you said to your question is let's use this new approach to money that money is a social relationship that we're not necessarily um we, we we have enough of it to do what we the things that we want to do and it's actually not that expensive like relative to the war in iraq relative to the stimulus check uh, payments that we've had like especially for the positive outcome of saving, you know, keeping the planet under two degrees. So we could just buy all the fossil fuel companies and close them down. And I don't mean buy them out and make the shareholders worse off, like true them up, you know, get them what they expect, just pay for it, close those companies down and replace them with a, a clean energy infrastructure. Um, now, what, what are the knock-on effects of that in the rest of the industry? Huge, right? Because we, we've seen from 2008 how the financial industry is so convoluted. So there are going to be people who have hedge derivatives in those markets. And it's not so easy, like I said, to just close it down because there are people have stakes in those industries. And the commodity markets are like, like an octopus. They have their tentacles and everything throughout our economy. So just chopping that off and closing it down is is not as easy as it sounds but my point is if we can spend to prop we're, we're bailing out airline industries we're bailing out big companies right now if we can do all that and we can finance wars then we can you know close down bp all right so we've got that was strong <laughs> strong point to end on there but we're gonna i'm gonna ask you one more question um to end in the last, next couple minutes um with this reframing of money that you've given us of thinking of money as a social relation, as we're looking through the next couple months or year, what are things that we should be paying attention to for thinking about money as a social relation, like this pandemic start to, you know, it's going to continue to change and take shape. What, what should we be thinking about? What should we be paying attention to, to understand how money is moving and what it's moving in the system? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And maybe it's easiest to just say one thing, and it kind of goes back to what I had mentioned earlier about um, having this tool of the central banks funding the treasury uh, being opened up now. I think what we need to keep an eye on is Washington and London. And how are how are the, 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 the actors in power responding to and capitalizing upon this, this sort of change in policy that we're seeing? And, you know, unfortunately, some of, the, some of what I'm starting to see is that the stimulus was, it seems much more for, for, for Wall Street than Main Street. 
And there's been that critique in the UK as well that a lot of the, what we're doing is propping up um, big banks. And the reason we prop up big banks is so we can continue to take out credit so that businesses can access credit, so individuals can access credit. So there's, I think what we do is we pay attention to where is that money flowing and to whom is it going. So we're doing sort of Herculean things right now at the, at the Fed treasury level. Um, and in, in England, the Bank of England and, and Her Majesty's Treasury, that coordination is powerful. Where that goes is what we need to keep an eye on because we could see an exacerbation of sort of the fallout of 2008 if we aren't careful. Um, and the Fed, the central banks around the world always talk about making sure lines of credit are continues are, are continue to stay open. Well, it's not debt that the average American needs right now. It's not more access to credit. I just looked at at household debt the other day, and it's about double in the United States of what it was in two thousand eight, and that was a debt crisis, right? So we're we're doubling our debt. Like we don't need more credit. We need more cash in our hands, right? So I think what I would keep an eye on is just like where we've seen that we can be resilient in the face of catastrophe. Does that resilient hold up an efficient market or does that resiliency hold up a system of care, justice and sustainability? And that's, I guess, for the future to, to decide. Awesome. The construction has started outside my apartment. I'm taking that as a sign to say thank you. Joe, this is really awesome. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, we welcome you to check out other episodes of the podcast, which you can find on your preferred podcast app including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple and Google Podcasts. We'd also invite you to follow the podcast on Twitter, where we post links to new episodes and relevant tidbits about environmental social science. You can also listen to the podcast and find out more about the Environmental Social Science Network on our website, ESSnetwork.net. Feel free to reach out and get in touch with us through the website with any feedback or ideas you have for the show. We would love to hear what you think.